Oh, good morning. I understand you are in a study of First uh, John, and uh, Drew asked me if I would walk you through first five verses of chapter five, which is kind of a summary to the whole psalm. You know, um, a lot of people don't know that this psalm is one of the, I mean, this, this letter is one of the first of the three letters John writes after he gets off the island of Patmos. Uh, remember, he was placed there in 1895 by Domitian, the emperor of Rome. And uh, it's a penal island, like an Alcatraz. And he was there, and there he received the visit. He receives the book of Revelation. You ever ask yourself the question, he receives the book of Revelation on this island. Now, there, there, there's no food service. There's, there's, there's no medical care. You, you die on the island. Holly and I have been on that island. And they just roll you right out in the sea and you rot in your fish food. So anything you've written is going to be fish food as well. So you ever wonder how we got the book of Revelation? Because John gets off the island of Patmos. Domitian is assassinated apparently around AD 96. Uh, his wife was in on it. So gentlemen, take note. And uh, in the Roman Senate, they, they repeal a lot of the edicts. And one had to do with John. And John gets off the island and he goes back to his home church there in Ephesus and he hands delivered the book of Revelation. Well, there he's growing old. And there he's my age in his 80s and moving into his 80s. And, and he's like the bishop of the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. He uh, is concerned because he's writing to these third generation Christians. Now John, like I say, is an older man. He was the youngest of all the apostles, remember? And so the first generation of Christians, those were the ones who actually saw the resurrected Christ or knew people who had. Then you had the second generation believers. Those are the folks that their mom and dad and uncle, they knew people who had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. But now we're in that third generation. These people are like us. They've never seen it, nor they have ever talked to anybody who saw the resurrected Christ. And so it really comes down to, to faith. And Lord, there's a great temptation. In John 17, Jesus is praying. It's the real Lord's Prayer. And Jesus is praying for, for the boys, for the apostles. But if you look at chapter 17 of John, up towards the end, he stops. He says, now, Lord, I no longer pray for these. But I want to pray for those who will believe because of their testimony. It's the only place in the Bible I see Jesus ever prays for guess who? Us, because we believe because of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. So what does Jesus pray for us? His father, I pray as you and I are one, they would be one. Well, that, that's a good prayer. And you go, oh no, Jesus, don't do it. Don't do the purpose clause. Because then he goes on to say, and Lord, I pray that they'd be one as you and I are one, so that the world will know that I came from the father. Now you go, Jesus, what did you just do? I believe Satan probably was there and he probably sighed relief and went, boy, you sure made my job easy. Because what Jesus simply did was gave the world the right. The judge, Jesus is a phony, never came from the Father based on how we treat each other. Now you begin to understand why we have 30,000 denominations, why Christians seem to cannot get along. And when we do, it's kind of an issue. Well, what happened is he's third generation. John is concerned because John recorded that John 17 prayer. And so he's writing this letter. 
because there's trouble in the truth. There's these folks called the Gnostics. These were false teachers that came into the church and they said, you know what you believe about Jesus? You don't quite have it right. You understand with Greek philosophy, these bodies are evil and God would never come down and take on an evil body. So Jesus was either a phantom that you could put your hand right through him. That's why he could walk on water and not leave footprints. Or he was just simply a man, a carpenter, that, that the Lagos, the Christos, came upon him in his baptism. And then just before he's crucified, what a, he leaves him. He abandons him. And it's just the man, Jesus. Because you don't worry about, there's no such thing as sin, because your body's evil, so you don't need forgiveness. Well, so these Gnostics were coming in and confusing these dear folks. And John goes, oi vey, <laughs> I, I'm going after them. So he writes his letter, 1 John. And he even gives us the purpose of the letter. And in chapter 5, verse 13, remember when he said, he said, now these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, now that's the question. How do you know you know? He says, I've written these things so that you will know. The Greeks had the word gnosko, which means to learn something. But if they want to talk about something you know without any doubt, they use the word oida, and that's the word you have right here. So they've written these things, this letter, first, this, this letter, 1 John, so that you can have an assurance and a confidence that you know that you have eternal life. Now, what's eternal life? In fact, you're going to live on and on and on. And on. Every soul is going to live on and on and on and on and on. Jesus himself defines eternal life in that same prayer in John 17. Remember how the prayer begins? Father, I... Uh, I have come, and I've come to give them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. In other words, do you have a relationship with God as your creator, as your heavenly father, or do you not? How do you know you know? You know we, um, do you remember when we were younger, how peer pressure so pressured us? Now, some of you are way too young. Some of you older ones, remember bell bottoms? Ah, remember length of hair uh, for boys and girls. Split right down the center, have it kind of go really down, little surfer girl look, you know. I remember big, big um, sideburns. Oh, that was in. Now, for one who was a late puberter, that was very difficult. And so I remember I would, I would grow my hair down, and I would comb it way down so I would have really cool and have sideburns. And, and then one time, there was, it was windy, and, and I didn't notice and when I looked in the mirror, they had all kind of blown up and curled up. And Holly reminded me of, of this. We, we did a lot of stupid things out of just peer pressure. We want to fit. But you know, we get to an age where you want to say, all right, how do we break the system? Not so much, how do I not let the system break me? And the answer is very, very simple. Do your own thinking. Stop letting other people think for you. Stop believing every social media every news broadcaster, even sometime your friends. You've got to do your own thinking. It's the only way you're ever going to know that you know you have a relationship with God. And, and what does it mean to do your own thinking? Think is simply one thing. You ask yourself questions. You just start asking yourself questions. What do I believe? Not what I'm told to believe, not what my folks believe, not what all my friends and my pastor believe. What do I believe? And as you go the process of answering that question, what do you believe and why do you believe it? And how do you know it's true? 
Now you have beat the system because now faith has become your faith. Well, that's what John is doing in this letter. And we come to chapter 5. And let's just pick it up right there in the first verse. So John writing to these third generation Christians who are kind of being attacked by the Gnostics. They're a little confused. He says, well, I think I know. Perhaps I know. And this is what John says. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves a child born of him. Kind of John, you know, I understand. Holly says that my, my filters are getting thinner the older I get. You know, we're about to turn 74. And, you know, God needs to take me home before I'm in my 80s. Because when I'm in my 80s, I'll just spit on people. I know I'm getting in tankers here, you know. They're really kind of dangerous. Kind of cut right through it here. Well, John goes before me. Yeah, he's the beloved John. But Jesus also nicknamed him what? One of the sons of thunder. He speaks his mind. And the older he gets, his, 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 his sanctified filters are getting thinner. And he summarizes here really the two things. You notice he says, now whoever believes... That Jesus is the Christ. Now, believes, leaves. What does that mean, believing? I, I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in Easter Bunny. I believe. But it, the word believe simply is the word faith. I'm faithing it. And the word faith is to trust something. And, and trust is revealed that you obey what you trust. And what you obey, you trust. What you don't trust, you don't obey. Now, when you talk about faith, and he talks a little, a little bit, living in a moment about faith. He says, well, I don't know if I believe in faith because I'm sophisticated. <laughs> I guess we're so tired of people thinking we're so brilliant. And one way is, well, I don't believe in faith. I'm from Missouri. I've got to see it. <laughs> well, wait, 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 wait. Faith, first of all, it's not something you believe in. None of us believe in faith. I don't believe in faith. You don't have faith in faith. <laughs> but, but you believe with faith. Faith is simply trusting something. Or trusting someone. How many of you have ever eaten at McDonald's? I worked my way through college at McDonald's. You have no idea how we flatten those birds, you know? And you just take that McDonald's, you eat that, slop that baby down. Don't you tell me you don't live by faith. Holly and I jumped on an airplane, and, and they had the door to the pilot shut. So I don't know if the guys are having a party and drunker than snot or what. And I didn't see the maintenance record. I just flopped down. They light that thing on fire. Pfft, we fly out. And I'm going to say I don't believe in faith. No, we all trust someone or something. But we ask ourselves the question, who am I trusting? What am I trusting? And why? Why am I trusting? Well, notice he says, whoever trusts that Jesus is the Christ, we are born of God. Now, what is this born of God? Uh, born again, you know, we used to use it a lot. Now when you, you use it, people go cross-eyed at you. What do you mean you're born again, you know? Some of your older ones. But Jimmy Carter wasn't the one who made it up. Jesus did. You go back to John again. John, the author, and he records in John, his gospel, chapter 3, that one night Jesus gets a visit from a guy named Nick, Nicodemus. And this guy is, uh, 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 he's on the Sanhedrin, and he's one of the religious, Jewish religious leaders. And he shows up because he's been listening to Jesus. And, and he, he kind of goes, boy, he sounds like he's right. And Nicodemus asking himself some questions about, what do I believe? 
And that's the night that Nicodemus shows up at night, doesn't want anybody to see it, a little embarrassed. And, and he basically asks the question, how does somebody go to heaven? How does somebody enter into the kingdom of God, is the word he used. And that's what Jesus laid it on him. <laughs> well, you know, you must uh, be born again. Jesus said it. And of course, <laughs> Nicodemus, he, he goes, Whoa, mom's not going to be excited about that one. You know, uh, how do we handle that baby? You know, it wasn't too good the first time. Uh, and then Jesus says, you, you idiot. Well, he didn't say you idiot. I would have said idiot. But he says, you're a teacher of the Jews? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And what he's talking about is going all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. When a great prophecy would be that when Messiah comes, the Christos, the Christ comes, that what he would do is not only would he provide for the forgiveness of your sins by taking the wrath of God on himself, but also it says he'll take that old heart of stone of yours, rip it out of you, put a new heart. For he says, I'll put part of myself. We call it the Holy Spirit. God says he'll put part of himself in us and cause us to have a big want. And the big want is we want to follow the statues of Christ. We, we don't want to blow off. It, it, it's like a new life. It's like, in like the life I used to live, which was my old heart, me, myself, and I, the blessed trinity, I want to please me. But now it's like I've been born from above, born again, introduced to a new life, because now not only is no guilt and shame in my life, I've been forgiven, but I got a new big want. Spirit of God in me has given me a new heart, and I have this deep desire I never had before. And what desire is that? A, child, a, a, a desire that any child has for a father he loves, a father she loves. You, you see, we're born, we're creatures. And God's the creator. And God's got all kinds of creatures. He's got dogs, cats, horses, pigs, and us. And yet Genesis 1.27 says that he placed... And when he created us, he created us in his own what? Image. His own image. Boy, I searched the scriptures. Nowhere does it say angels bear the image of God. And nowhere does it say any animal bears the image of God. But we bear the image. There's something we can do animals and angels can't do. What do you learn about God from angels? Nothing, because they're busy obeying. What do you learn from God and you from your cute little puppy? Well, I'm glad your puppy's cute, but you're not going to learn anything about God, but we can actually manifest what our Creator's like. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We can reflect the beauty of our Creator. But here's the deal, is that God is Creator and we're creature. That's just like every animal and everything else, but God never intended that. What did John 1.12 say? As many as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to them God gave the authority for a relational change. God gave them the authority to become the what? Children of God. Sons and daughters of God. That's why in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, God says, you know the relationship I want with you? Not creed or creature, and you're running around either indifferent to me or scared to death of me or something. But he says, I am God, but I'll be a father to you, and you will be what to me? Sons and daughters. That's the eternal life, to have a relationship with the creator, not as a creature with a creator, but rather a son, a daughter, with a father. 
and that our fathers and he, he's engaged in every detail of our life. But on our side, do you remember when you were little kids and you loved and you're proud of your dad? Well, my dad can beat up your dad. My dad was a butcher. He'd come home at night with blood all over his white shirt. And I would make sure all the neighbor boys knew about my dad, who used to just bloody people up all day. It protected me because I was a little bit of a wiener in the words of my life, you know, personally. But you wanted to tell people how proud my dad, my, well, so it is. Any daughter, any son, we want to honor our father. I never had that desire before. I want to honor me, especially in junior high and high school. But after I received this new heart, this new cosmic want, after my sins were forgiven, all of a sudden now I have this deep desire. I want to honor God as my father. I want to honor God as my father. So he says now, so whoever believes, trusts Jesus, that he's the Christ, is born of God. I am now a new creation. I'm now a son, a daughter with a heavenly father with a desire to honor my father. That's it. But now he says, do I, have I trusted that Jesus is the Christ? No, no, I, I thought Christ was his last name. You know, middle name was the, Jesus the Christ. I mean, what, what, what does it mean, Jesus being Christ? There was this um, Jewish gentleman, gentleman, I don't know if he's a gentleman, but back in the days of Jesus, right after Jesus ascended up to heaven, his name was Flavius Josephus. He's a, a, a Jewish general, uh, but Roman, and he wrote most of the history we have outside the Bible, secular history, and he mentions in his account Jesus. And there's a very interesting statement that comes right out of his writings about the history right after Christ, he was on the planet. And basically, he's not a Christian, but this is his account. Quote, now, there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to himself both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. His disciples reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, the Christ. Now what's interesting to me about that is, all right, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, it doesn't say whoever believes that Jesus was perhaps the Christ. But whoever believes he's the Christ. Remember, Christos is the word, it's the translation of the Hebrew word, Messiah, all the same thing. But what was that whole thing all about? Okay, I'm trusting Jesus is Christ. What am I trusting? Well, there's a book in the Old Testament that uh, uh, towards the close of the first century, the whole interpretation of the thing was changed. Because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, for example, chapter 53, early Jewish Christians would use this chapter to, because they didn't have the Bibles. They didn't have a New Testament written yet. So they would use primarily Isaiah 53 to, to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Christ, the promised Messiah. Because his description of his purpose of covering, coming, he was called the suffering servant. His crucifixion is described there. And what happened was because it was so effective and so many Jewish folks were coming to Christ being Jewish believers because of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 
After AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, they moved the Jewish teaching temple up north, and then they changed the interpretation in the suffering servant, even though for thousands of years, it was the promised Messiah. But it was switched to the nation of Israel. They are now the suffering servant. But that's why they changed it. It's because so clearly the Messiah. But now listen, listen. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. He says, but the Lord was pleased. Now here's the key. To crush him, putting him to grief. If, here's the big if. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. He'll give him a kingdom and a reign. But if that is, if Jesus agrees and submits to be a guilt offering. Now, what, what, what is that? Well, remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus? What did John say? Behold the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, the way to sin is, is, is death. Well, I'm not a sinner. You know, people, that, does, that goes over not very well. You're a sinner. No, don't tell people. But you can say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Because what the whole point is, is that what is sin? God's our creator. And talk about the cosmic betrayal. We turn our back on our creator and live like he's not there and like we don't care what anything he has to say and we live our own lives that fall, that's what sin is all about. It's not that you spit, chew, you don't go the girls who do. That's not the point. The point is we have turned our backs on our creator. Who wants to be our heavenly father? We have cosmically betrayed our creator. That's called sin. And if we want to be out of his presence, God will say, then you'll be out of my presence for eternity. And that's called death, hell. But God so loved the world that he provided a way back. See, when the Bible says God is love, and you've seen it all over the place, God is love. What does that mean? Well, it means God loves. Oh, no, no, God is love. Love is not the verb there. Now, God so loved the world, John 3, 16. Uh, there, love is the verb. But remember ninth grade? I know most of us guys slept through ninth grade grammar. But remember, uh, uh, God is a subject, is, is the verb, the verb to be. Love is a predicate nominative. Oh, oh, oh write that baby down. Predicate nominative means that it repeats the nominative, the subject. In other words, God is not just something that God love, he does. Love is something God is. And it simply means this. He values what he creates no matter how it turns out. That's why John 3.16 isn't a lie. Me, I'm not love. I make junk. And I throw junk away. Only decision I have is that, okay, recyclable or is that crumb? <laughs> That's it. But God doesn't make junk. God created a way back. How so? The Christ. Remember when Jesus in that garden? Sweat, I mean the capillaries are breaking here. Big time. He read the pamphlet on crucifixion. And he goes, oh my, this is going to hurt. And so he goes to prayer and he's asking God, is there any other way? So Jesus never said that. What do you think he meant when he said, Lord, can this cup pass from me? What do you think he's talking about? I don't want to. Would you like to go to the cross? Have people putting in? No, it's a, this is not a good thing. So he's praying, God, is there any other way? And then what did Jesus say right after that? But not my will, I will be done. See, thy will, 
Because here in Isaiah 53.10, it was the Father who asked him, Will you become a guilt offering? Will you permit me to pour my wrath upon you so that you would represent all of my creation and those who would own up, own up to their sin? That's all repentance is. Tell them the picking truth and owning up that I have turned my back on my creator and I've sinned. Well, Jesus said, I will submit to your will. Not my will, but thy will be done. I mean, what does the cross mean to you? That, that, do you normally wear little utensils of torture and execution around your neck and say, and it's got real diamonds? Well, no, let's put an electric chair. Anybody got an electric chair around their neck? You know, no, well, why do you wear a cross? Because that's what the cross was, is because something happened to turn that vessel of torture to an emblem of what? Of love. What do you think happened? So he says here, whoever believes, trusts that Jesus is that Christ, is that Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, is God's provision, so that on that cross God would pour his wrath and the penalty of sin would be paid for all of us who would just tell the truth and own up that, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I mean, think about it. Have you ever tried to forgive somebody who doesn't believe they did anything wrong? Boy, that's a lot of fun. Hey, I forgive you. Shut up! I didn't do anything. You know? No, we got a lot of shut-ups going on here. But, but you can only forgive somebody who what? Admits that they need what? Forgiveness. That's all it is. And the fact is that we come and we own up and say, God, that forgiveness you provided on the cross by pouring your wrath on Jesus, wow, I need that forgiveness in my life. And that's the beautiful thing. And God not only forgives, but he puts part of himself in you. Uh, Ephesians 1.17, when you first heard the gospel, you believed. And when you were believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. God put that new heart, part of himself, the Spirit of God in you, and gave you that new big want. Now the big want is not so much how do I please me, but how do I honor my Father? This is something you can look at in your own life. Yes or no? Is it real or is it not to you? Not just stuff you got to believe, but reality that have you had that experience and you trust it. And then he gives a second kick on this assurance of knowing that you know you have a relation with God as your father. Notice he says, and everyone who loves the father loves the child born of him. I don't know. There's a lot of Christians that are just really unlovable. I mean, they look like they've been baptized in pickle juice. I mean, they're just judgmental. And, and I, sometimes I think, do all wackos become Christians? You know, because let's be honest. You know, it's like, whoa. So I'm supposed to love? Do you remember in Matthew 22, the, Jesus is interacting with these scribes. And he shuts them up. And, and, and so they hire a lawyer. And a lawyer from the Pharisees, he comes to trick Jesus. And in Matthew 22, he comes to Jesus and he simply says, what's the most important thing God ever said? Now that's a pretty good question. I'd like to hear what the Son of God says about that. What's the most important thing God ever said? Now the word he uses, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, you shall love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And you kind of go, all right, got that one right, one for one. 
It's like the Lord is going to walk away. And she said, hey, get back here. I'm not done. He says, and the second is as the first. That means the second is just as important as the first. And what is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. For upon these two, all prophets, all the prophets, all the scripture rests on these two. Now, why the two? If you ever study the book of Galatians, you're going to come to Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. And Paul's going to ask you a very simple question. Do you want to fulfill the law of Christ? And you go, well, yeah. I want to fulfill the law of Christ. And guess what he says it is? Love your neighbor as yourself. You go, Paul, whoa, hey, hey, Paul, how old are you? A little dementia kicking in here? He forgot the first part. The important part is loving God. And he just skips the loving God and moves to loving neighbors yourself. What's wrong with Paul? Well, what is wrong with Paul's also wrong with the half-brother of Jesus, James? Because James chapter 2, verse 8, James asks the question, you want to fulfill the royal law of God? Yeah. Then guess what he says? Love your neighbors yourself. Why does he forget the first part? They did not forget the first part. Do you think God is going to say, I want you to love me and you figure out how to do it? Oh, great. We're going to have 30,000 denominations. In Egypt, they're going to chop some heads off and say, we're doing this because we love God. I mean, do you think God trusts us as far as he can throw us? And he could throw us a long ways. That we would come up how we're going to love God? We'd have songs and worship and weird things. Well, you've got to cut your chest to love God. I love God more. We'd make it a competition, would we not? And God says, I don't trust you. I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul. I'm going to tell you how I will be loved. No other way. I will be loved only by the way you what? You treat others. That's how God is loved. That's how God is seen to be loved. That's why he says here, if you trust, believe in Christ, that Jesus was God's provision for the forgiveness of your sin and a whole new life, born again, like introduced to a new life, now driven by a desire to honor God as your father. And you're going to see that because the way you treat others, because whoever loves the father loves the one born of the father. How do I know I love God? Well, I go to church, memorize scripture, and I know a lot of Bible. No. I know I've got to love God because I can't believe some of the people I love. <laughs> but isn't it so great that love is not kissy-facey, huggy body? I mean, they had the word eros. That would be, boy, that'd be really weird. You know, this is all eros, you know. No, that's an emotion. Uh, it's not the word philo. Friendship, hey, let's all go be close friends and have things in common we enjoy. No, that's an emotion, and they come and go. Well, it's Storge, it's family. Aunt Zelma, I gotta love Aunt Zelma, Uncle Bowman, you know, they're family. But those are all emotions, and they're never commanded in the scripture, because you can't command an emotion. But John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, now this command, the word is entole. Well, the disciples pop their heads up, they're going, whoa. Jesus didn't command us to do a bunch of stuff. So where's he coming off? And Jesus says, this commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now you kind of go, Jesus, don't do it. Don't do it. He does it. So that all men will know you are my, what? 
Yeah, great. So not the way we treat each other, the world can now judge whether or not we're phonies on the way we treat each other. But you see, that's the evidence. Yeah, we get irritated at each other. I'm right now, half of you, I can tell I'm irritating you. But don't worry, we're done in five minutes. You know, and the irritation's over. Although, Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't forsake gathering yourself together, which is the habit of some. But stimulate one another in love and good deeds, as you see the day appearing. That word stimulate speaks of a long pole with a sharp end. They used to stimulate cattle. Kind of, yeah! So it can be translated to irritate. And Holly says, that's my gift. Uh, so whatever it might be, but the point is still this. So he says, now whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, trust that he is. Well, he's born again, has this relationship with God as a, a son, a daughter with a father. And then that the proof of that is he loves his brothers, sisters in Christ. But now verse 2 and 3. See, you're picking. That was one verse. Not worry. This will go quickly. He says this. He says, by this we know. Now that's the word gnosko. This is how we learn that we know what we know. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. What's, what big commandment did he give? To love one another. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, you know, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is rest. If you want to have real rest in your soul, stop fighting each other. Stop irritating each other. Not because we're not irritating and deserve to be fighting each other, but the world's watching. And I don't want the world to use my bad attitude towards anybody around me, like I'm a weapon, to conclude that Jesus is a fraud and that I'm a phony. The game's too important for me to just because I learned in junior high, hurt me, I hurt you. Come on, what did Paul say? When we were children, we, we acted like children. But now, no. He says, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is not just the Christ, but the Son of God. Now you know what's interesting about that? Is that one of the evidences that John wrote this after he got off the island is because when he was on the island and he received the book of Revelation from Jesus, you remember just 60 years before Jesus in Matthew 16 said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sixty years later, later he writes seven, Jesus writes seven letters to his church, and he's ticked at five of them. Five times the boy had this against you. People say, I don't like the church. Well, get in line behind Jesus. He gets ticked at his church, too. But he writes these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. And, 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 and five of them, he says, boy, you can get your act together. Two of them... You're hanging in there well. But at the end of every letter, the end of every letter, he gives a little bit of hope. We call it the hug slug hug. <laughs> he ends with a little hug. And, and notice how he does it. For example, uh, the end of the first letter, he says, I say this, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just Ephesus, to all the churches. 
He says, to him who overcomes, I grant part of the tree of life. Then at the very end of the next letter, to him who overcomes, not going to be hurt by the second death. Third letter, for him who overcomes, going to get that white stone that is in courtroom, declared uh, not guilty. Uh, next letter, he ends it with, and he who overcomes, and more good stuff. And then next letter, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. All the good stuff goes to those who overcome. Amen. Now, nowhere in Revelation does he ever explain what that means. He doesn't explain what it means to overcome. So I'm kind of going, you mean to get the good stuff? I need to overcome. So you know when John got off the island, and he's there in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, probably in Ephesus, I'm sure the first question he was asked by those who read the book of Revelation, especially those letters that were hand-delivered, he probably went, uh, John, what does it mean to overcome? I kind of would like to know how to do that. Because that's the key to getting all the good stuff. He never explains it in the book of Revelation. But guess where he explains it? Right here. Right here. See? Verse 4. But whatever is born of God, what is it? Overcomes the world. You know the word Nike? Your tennis shoes, real fast. Victory. That's the word here. Nike. So victory over. No defeat. So whoever overcomes the world is not going to ever be defeated. Now how would we be defeated? Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. Remember our reading when we read John chapter 6? When Jesus simply says, All whom the Father gives to me, I will not cast out, but I will gather. And this is the will of God. I will lose only 10%. No, no, no. No, I don't think that's what it said. I will lose what? Nothing. Not one. So, here he says, how do I become an overcomer? It was my faith. My faith in who? Jesus. Was it my faith that Jesus was the Christ? God's provision for my forgiveness and the gift of eternal life? Yes, but also it says here, my faith is, what's verse 5? Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that doesn't mean he's God. He's the son of God. That's less than God. Uh, Holly and I have two sons. John and Kent. John's 50. <laughs> How am I? John's 50. Kent's 47. And uh, they're my sons. And because they're not me, but they're my sons, they're less human than I am. I am fully human, but they're just my sons. So they are little subhuman. No, no, when it says Jesus is the Son of God, He is as divine as the Father. We're talking roles. The Father has the role of the Father. Jesus, the Son, has the role of a Son who honors the Father. And the Father protects and honors the Son. So it has here, what does it mean to believe Jesus is the Son of God? Again, John, about 30 years before this, John wrote a gospel. And remember how he began the gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to make sure you get it straight, only God creates heavens and the earth. So verse 2 and 3, 
He, he says, all things came into being through him. And without him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. And then verse 14, Christmas. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but is the son of God, God the son, who revealed and explained what the Father's like. That's why Philip, in John 14, when Philip, finally after Jesus says, the guys are all bummed out because they thought Jesus was going to beat up Rome and, and they would have a little kingdom and they would be the big dogs in the kingdom. Now Jesus talks about he's going to be killed, crucified. Boy, that, that's not good news. So they're all depressed. This is, he's going to be, Jesus is going to be arrested in four hours, tortured, crucified in 12 hours, and they're all bummed out. And remember the first three verses of John 14? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, heaven, heaven, a place, a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you'll be also. That's kind of a big deal. I would not want to rate Philip's IQ. Because all he has to say is, Jesus, show us the Father, and it is enough. And Jesus, <laughs> I would have said a few other things, but Jesus looks at Philip and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Father like Son. So you see, if, if Jesus is not only the Christ, the one God provided, the one that, that submitted to becoming that sin offering, that guilt offering, that God, had, with permission of the Son, to pour his wrath upon his own Son to die in our place so that the Father could, in justice and holiness, absolutely forgive us. And it put part of himself in us to put the big want, take the old heart, so we're like born again born to a whole new life, driven by a desire to honor not God as, or fear him as a creator, but to honor him as our what? Heavenly Father. And therefore, how could the Christ do that? Because he was God the Son. That's why he, being perfect, could die for all. All would own up. All would own up. Well, you know, I want to close with, with this. Um, how many of times have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Not recite it. Pray it. Matthew 6, the boys are asking Jesus, you know, when we talk to God, what does God want us to talk to him about? And then Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Or if you're Lutheran, pray this. No, no, not, not really. But basically, he gives six points, six requests. And, and, and I know when many times I say, well, I pray the Lord's Prayer. No, you're not. You're reciting the Lord's Prayer. You memorize it. You recite it. That's not praying it. So what does it mean to pray the Lord's Prayer? Because you cannot. Unless you know you have a relation with God as your Father. Because what it means to pray the Lord's Prayer, it means this. Father, ah, today, may I honor you. May I just show the world who you really are. And Father, may I live out the kingdom 
And Jesus is the head of the king. He's the king. So may I follow the commandments of Christ. May, may people see Christ in me and everything I say and do today. And, and the Lord, may your will be done in everything I do. May it be your will. I'm not afraid of your will. And Lord, today, give me whatever I need to live. And, and then, Father, help me be gracious today. There's people who are going to burn me, and, but Lord, I burned you. And as you've forgiven me, God, just help me be a gracious, forgiving person today. You know, Lord, there's a lot of stuff out there that's pretty bad, pretty evil. Please don't let it become temptation for me. Just don't let any of that stuff be temptation for me. This I know I pray in the name of Christ because this was what Christ told me to talk to you, my father, about. So how do you know you know? Don't just believe what everybody's telling you. Think for yourself. So ask yourself the questions. Why do you believe Jesus is God, the Son, that he's the Christ? It's the most remarkable thing. Did you believe it? I mean, come on. Jesus, what, about five foot six? 2,000 years ago, a little Jewish guy, God in a bod, created the heavens and the earth, got in trouble with Rome and the Jewish leaders. They killed him. But they say he was raised from the dead and that if I realize his death was a, a sacrifice for my sin and that if I ask forgiveness, God gives it and my life has changed. That's the most unbelievable story ever told. How do you think in a moment anybody could believe that? Jesus owns up to it. In John chapter 6, verse 44, it was Jesus who said, No one comes unto me. No one's going to believe who I am. It's too beyond belief. But he said, Unless the Father, what? Draws him. And then the next verse, verse 45. For the prophets say, it will be the Father who will cause you to recognize who I am. That's why you believe. Don't get all freaked out because it's so hard to think. Why do I believe something so unbelievable? It's because God the Father caused you to see the truth. And there's your assurance. Amen? Amen. Amen.